0: All right, so Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to begin this morning. Um, I have titled the message, At the Gate, as we sit in David's life. So we'll get back into 2 Samuel 18 in a minute. David's life, uh, the circumstance, we're watching David at the gate of a particular city. It has an image in the culture and the time Um, and the image that it conveys to us in the New Testament, we're gonna jump into Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. We're we're in the middle of a very specific context in Matthew. This is what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, commercial break. Uh, Once we finish 2 Samuel on July 23rd, I believe is the right Sunday, we're gonna begin a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. So we'll get a lot more into this context. But what this is, this is Jesus's first public message of his ministry that we have recorded for us. And in this message, he's correcting and encouraging a heart away from culture and specifically away from the religious culture, things that the culture had learned uh, growing up and the permissions that they had and what it means to worship God, what the behavior looks like. Jesus is giving a lot of corrections and encouragement and instructions in this passage. So we're going to just jump into the middle of that whole context for this idea of gate. And that's verse 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And in this context, Jesus is, he's, he's challenging the hearts, he's challenging perspectives. And one of the ideas that he's challenging is people's idea of what it means to have a relationship with God, what it means to live that relationship out, what it means to be part of God's kingdom and not just his kingdom on this earth and in our hearts today, but his eternal kingdom. And the exhortation that Jesus is sitting in and the command is that there, there's a narrow gate and there is a narrow way of following God. Broad is the path, there, there are, I don't know how many, but there is many different definitions for creation for who the true and living God is, for what it means to have a relationship with him, for how we are saved. Is it through our works? Is it solely through Jesus' death on the cross? There's many different religious teachings in the world that Jesus in this passage is defining as a broad path. And not just a broad path, but the mouth of that gate, it's wide. So we have doors that are entering to, into this room. That, those would be considered the narrow way. There's a, there's a singular entrance in. But what he's giving religiously in the teaching is that religious teachings, there's a, there's, a, there's a broad path, many different ways. And the entrance into those many different ways comes through a variety of means. But that broad gate leads to a broad path that does not lead to eternal life, but it leads to an eternal separation from God. So the exhortation that Jesus is giving in this passage is that there's a narrow gate. And in John, he teaches us, he says, I am the gate to the sheepfold. You only enter into a relationship with your creator through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Narrow is the gate. Singular is the gate. Singular is the entrance. Now, as we sit in that teaching, often it's, all right, now that we've entered the gate of life, we've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, now he is the one that is keeping us on the straight and narrow path. So in the Bible, the the idea of walking, the idea of a path defines, it's an image for our behaviors and actions in life that God sets us on a narrow path. Here's the instructions of what we ought to do in relationships with him. This is what we ought not to do in a relationship with him. And we stay on that narrow path as we follow him in worship and in faith and in service and everything that that relationship looks like. And he keeps us hedged in. He keeps us from jumping over that wall and climbing over that wall and turning to behaviors that we ought not. And if we choose to do that, we have a promise that is, we repent, He cleanses us and places us back on that narrow path in a relationship with him. That's the standard idea in this image. As we sit with David in his life context, when we read through today's chapter, it's a hard day for David. And as David is going through the circumstance of his hard day, he's living at the gate of this community And the gate in the Old Testament, you're dealing with the point of government, judges, decisions. You're dealing with the economics and the commerce of the day. You're dealing with, you have a walled city. And to get into that walled city, you have to enter in through the gate. So as David is in his life context, he's living at this gate. So In the image that we're going to press into today, it's not just this singular experience that we have of entering into life, entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ through him who is the narrow gate. We live in in a relationship with our Lord where we are required to make daily decisions. We live at this gate often where sometimes we want to leave the gate, to leave, to leave his presence. Again, David's going to image for us Jesus sitting there as king at the gate and that we only enter by him. Um, but we live in a life of experiences where some days you would define as a very good day. You have multiple days in your life that you would define that that was a really hard day. I don't know what your circumstances are today. You may be having a great day today. It may be really hard and really challenging. We know in the future, the more days that we have, the more variety that we're gonna have in that spectrum of days. So I want us just to keep this image of gate. And uh, so turn to 2 Samuel 18. Not only in the image of entering into a relationship with the Lord, but in that in that maintenance. And it'll come up a lot as we go through this morning's text. So again, we are jumping into the middle of a story as we are following David's life in 2 Samuel. So 18 is where we're going to be today. Last week we sat in the council that Hushai gave to Absalom, who was David's son, who has seized the throne. Hushai's advice to Absalom was for him to gather all of the army of Israel uh, together and then go and seek and search out for David's life and attack him. So again, Hushai is being a double agent. The advice that he gave to Absalom bought David time to get into a safe community, which is this Mahanaim, is the community where David is, at the gate that he is sitting at. He's been able to have many soldiers consolidate to him in that community at the same time that Absalom has sent out word and consolidated many of the children of Israel. They've crossed over the Jordan River, and now is the day of battle, and that's the scene that we're picking up. So verse 1 says, David numbered, and it's not that he counted out, but he's inspecting the people who have gathered to him. And it says that he set captains over thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people... I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, I don't think so. You shall not go out. For if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and it's at the hand, at the strength of this gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently, deal softly for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom so here's the scene as people have consolidated to david as he fled away from his son absalom he is inspecting those that are with him and that are ready for battle he's placed them recognized the leadership the generals that he has in his midst joab and abishai brothers Ittai. we were told that as david was fleeing from absalom that Ittai had just recently come to Jerusalem. David encouraged Ittai to stay back, that there's no reason for you to be in harm's way to flee with me. But Ittai wanted to go with David, and here he is, one of the three leaders, as David separates out the different soldiers for the battle plan that he has as Absalom is coming against him. But one of these ideas, as we told you last week, that David's responsibility as king is to go out to war, take the people out to war, to lead them in war, and to bring them back safely. But in this instance, David wants to go out. He wants to go out not to violently attack his brothers and sisters of the nation of Israel. He doesn't want to go out to kill his son Absalom. He wants to go out because he wants to protect Absalom, because he's afraid that Absalom is going to die. And again, this, this just gives insight into David's relationship with his son. We've already walked through a lot of the story and context, and we don't have time to go and rehash that. But David has a love for his son. And he wants his son to be successful. And David is mourning and grieving as he is watching his son make sinful decisions, not just against God, but against the culture and against David, his father. But David's desire to go out is to see to the safety of his son, Absalom. And the people say, no way. The people are not coming for us. They're coming for you and for you alone. If you die, David the battle is over, it's done with, and we're going to be left with Absalom as king and all the repercussions that that would lead into is their perspective. Well, one of the interesting ideas is they talk about David's worth. And this is, this is fascinating for me. As, as a creature, we have all been created by the creator of the heavens and the earth. And by definition, that God has chosen to create you individually. You have a value. And the value that you have, if you want to know how much you're worth, all you have to do is sit in the testimony of the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ. What is it that our God chose to become like his creatures, to tabernacle in this flesh, and to die for our sins, our rebellion? Our obnoxiousness, our stench, however, you wanted to find sin against him. He's the one that placed himself in our position and died our death for us. You want to know how much you were loved? That's how much you were loved. That's how much you were worth. That's how much you are valued. Now, in, in human beings, in our relationships, do we value one human being over another? Depending on the context, yes. And in this context, the reality is David's singular life is more valuable to protect than the 10,000 because of the consequences that it would have in the culture. David is the singular target of the military campaign that's coming against this group of people. On the other side, Absalom is the single military target from David's general's perspective that we're going to watch. This is uh, the idea that I press into is here, David's in this position of leadership. He is the one who has been called by God. He has been anointed by God. God is the one who has placed him into this position. And it's not so that David's name could be exalted so David can be powerful, so that David can have authority. It's so that David can image to the people the heart of God. Because we're told that when David select- when God selected David, that he was looking for a man who was seeking god's heart so he's looking for a leader who is seeking god's heart and the people perspective is interesting right because those who are on david's team in this picture they say that david is worth ten thousand of them what if you're on absalom's team how valuable is david he's worthless he's the target He's the man that you want to execute. He's the man that you want to get rid of. Because you don't value David, you value Absalom and his leadership. So the value that you find in another human being, it all depends on perspective. Do not let your heart and your mind and your life be uh, valued, uh, be appraised by other individuals. Make sure that the identity that you have in your self-worth is solely tied to your creator. Because if you are being motivated in your life through the value that other ple- people place on you, you will be absolutely miserable because you can't please everybody. As David is sitting in, some are valuing him highly, others are valuing him poorly. If he's sitting in the emotion of that, he's going to be all over the map. And David's focus, he's focused on the Lord, but he also is focused on the heart for his son. And the same goes for me. Many of you would hold me in high value that I am giving you an added benefit in my service to God and my service to you. And there's other people that would look at me in the same interaction with me that would not hold me in any value at all and go seek to find value that they're looking for in another. And I have to be okay with that. My worth is identified through, again, the image of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross in creating me and saving me and delivering me and walking alongside of me and putting up with me and sanctifying me and all the promises that he has given me to the future. I am so valuable that he has promised to cause me to be a co-heir with Christ for all eternity. And it's the same gift that he's given to every single one of us. That's where, our vow, that's where it needs to be grounded in, in that emotion. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a side note in this passage, but I think it preaches heavily in our relationship and how we walk out emotionally and circumstantially in life. Because many people are going to not like you for you, your personality, how you serve, And what can you do about that? You listen. Lord, change me where I need to change. But we can't please everybody for sure. And David is sitting in that. So David submits to the recommendation of those around him. And again, David's heart and his perspective is is he's looking for his generals as they go out to battle. Don't kill my son. Is David's instruction deal with Absalom gently go ahead and kill anybody else that you need to kill to get to Absalom but when you get to Absalom bind him bring him back be gentle it's interesting because even in this David's not valuing the life of the soldiers But all this weight and all this emphasis and this value on the weight of his son and all of that mixed emotion of the circumstances of the day as David is standing at this point at the hand, at the strength of the gate. And David's going to be living out this day at the gate. Verse 6 says, So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown. They were struck there before the servants of David. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. And the death of those 20,000 is the result of Absalom's choice to continue to sin. They are fighting for Absalom. And in that, they lost their lives because ultimately they are fighting against the will of God, Verse 8 says, For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole country, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And the idea is that the terrain was dangerous and treacherous, and that David was able to pick the battlefield as, as he was given time through Hushai's counsel, that the land itself was the cause of the death of more people than the sword was that day. Obviously, the Lord is working against Absalom's team. Verse nine says, Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under a thick bough of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth And the mule which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. Thanks for tossing in the belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand. I would not stretch out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For as there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. And Joab said, I can't linger with you. I can't wait with you anymore. I don't care what your excuses are, essentially. It says he took three spears, literally three rods, in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And the ten young men who bore Jacob's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpets, and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people, and they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent." Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, a memorial stone, which is in the King's Valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it is called Absalom's monument. So here's the scene as Absalom is on his mule. He's on his horse. They're in the woods of Ephraim. His horse takes him under the branch, uh, a lower branch of an oak tree. And his head, his hair, his glorious hair gets caught up in this tree. And the mule keeps going on. And he is left there, neck stretched out. Can you imagine? Neck stretched out as he's sitting there dangling by his hair on his head as he's dangling between the earth and the heaven. And the image is meant to be An image. The image of the king is the king, Absalom, at this point is riding on his mule. It's the position of the king in this scene. And God has just dethroned him. He, we are told that his hair was thick and lustrous and heavy, and this is a beautiful man. But this beautiful man is in rebellion against God, and the Lord is the one who drove this animal underneath this tree as his hair is flowing. I don't have any of these issues. And his hair is flowing as he's riding. He gets caught in this tree, and he gets jerked back. And you can see him struggling. He can't untangle his hair He doesn't have a dagger to be able to cut his hair off to get out of this tree. He's sitting there hanging long enough as his neck is being stretched out, as he's getting fatigued for a man to see him hanging, for that man to go and find Joab and to tell Joab about it, for Joab to go and find Absalom and go through a very violent execution. But Absalom has that period of time of terror. This is his last moment. This is his last breath. We never see Absalom talking to God. I hope that he cried out to his creator in that moment as he's hanging from that tree, recognizing that it's God that's fighting against him because he is fighting against God. But we don't have that testimony in that story. What we do have is the testimony that Absalom is cursed. In Deuteronomy 21, we have a very strange sentence at the end of that chapter, that whoever is hung by a tree is cursed. The image of, if you have a public execution, you hang somebody from a tree, there, it's to be a very public display. This person has sinned against God, against the community, and because of their sin, they have lost their life. It's a public testimony. But God said, Don't let that body continue to hang there because that's not right. Cut the body down and bury it before the sun sets. But here we have the image that Absalom is cursed by God because Absalom is in rebellion against God. You can go sit in Deuteronomy 27-28 where you sit and God specifically expressing here is an individual who is cursed because they're in rebellion against God. Here is an individual who is blessed because they're in obedience against, uh, towards God. In that list of cursings, you can see at least two that Absalom is clearly guilty of. He has not honored his father, and he has slept with his father's wife. Specific curses that God called out to the individual. So this image that God is giving to us and that he gave in Absalom's life is a man who is cursed. He is hanging in a tree, and he is cursed by God because he has been in rebellion against God. Now you sit with Joab and the soldiers. Joab is an extremely violent man. And Absalom's death is an excessively violent death. So my translation says that Joab takes up three spears and he thrusts them into Joab's heart. The word is for, it's a stick or a rod. It's usually a rod and this is something that you would beat with. So it's not... The language is difficult because, so you're telling me that Absalom stuck three spears and to or, I'm going to get the word right, Joab struck Absalom with three spears in his heart and Absalom was still alive to get beaten to death by the other men. So the language, the picture is hard to walk through in what's being described, but what is being described is an excessively violent death joab is a violent man and his violence is going to lead to his death underneath solomon we have watched joab and his brothers in their violence multiple times we're going to see joab's violence a couple more times before he dies but here he's sick of listening to the messenger and the messenger saying hey if if i were to have executed absalom i would be i would be uh deceiving my own flesh and my own soul i would be living out a an action that is against the will of my king and it's a great heart for us to express towards our king and towards our savior that we wouldn't allow our hearts to be deceived in a way where we're justifying our rebellion and doing what we want to do against the command of our king So this soldier is saying, hey, I'm not going against the command of the king, and you're not going to trick me into it. If you want to do it, you go ahead and do it, and you be responsible for it. And we watch that play out in Joab and David's relationship later on. But here Joab strikes Absalom as he's hanging in a tree, essentially beating him out of the tree. And once Absalom falls to the ground, you have ten other men who jump him and beat him to death. To the point where they don't want David to see the body. That's what this story is expressing to us. It is excessively and extremely violent. They throw his body into a pit because they don't want King David to see the body. They cover his body with a heap of stones in this judgment against David's desire, feeling justified in their own actions and their own behaviors. And there's enough people that are involved in the execution of Absalom that David can't go to one man and say, you killed my son because many hands were in the beating. Do you have the picture? That testimony is going to get to David's heart, and we're going to see David's response to that in a minute. Verse 19 Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadak, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, for the Lord has avenged him on his enemies. The Lord is the one who is judged, the Lord is the one who has vindicated. And this is the news, the good news, that Himaz wants to run to David with. And this is the other imagery that we want to sit in and the idea that David is sitting at the gate. In the New Testament, we have this image that there is many people who, they are living at the gate of destruction, right? They're sitting in the broad gate. They're living out their life. Some of them, it's willful. Some of them are ignorant. But the beautiful feet and the beautiful mouth and the beautiful heart of the person who runs to them with the gospel. We're told that, that that's a beautiful experience. And this is the idea that we have in Himas. Himas wants to run with the good news. He wants to be swift of feet and to have the good news in his mouth. To go communicate to David that Yahweh, your creator, has saved you. He has delivered you. He has judged your enemies. He has vindicated you. He has avenged you. Is that good news? That's the gospel. That's what we run to people with the good news. Your king has vindicated you. Your king has paid for your sin. He has freed you from all of the attacks of the enemies. You are free. You are his. Here's the good news. And that's the excitement of this evangelist to him as he wants to run and go tell David. But Joab doesn't want him to go because it might be good news for a bunch of the people. It's a good news. They just won the battle, right? Their target has been executed. Battle's over. The tribes of Israel have departed and left. The battle's over. We've won. It ought to be good news in his mouth. But Joab knows what's occurred. He knows that Absalom is dead. He knows David's heart towards his son Absalom. And he knows that David is not going to receive this information as good news. It's going to be a mourning for David when he hears this news. So Joab turns back to him and says, I don't think you're going to take the news today. You shall take the news another day when it's actually good news. But today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead and Joab said to the Cushite so this is an Ethiopian he's a foreigner send that guy you go and tell the king what you have seen so the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran and him as said uh, the son of Zadok again said again to Joab whatever happened it just, be what may please let me also run after the Cushite and Joab said, why well will you will why will you run my son since you have no news ready uh, the Cushite is sending the news that David needs to hear you don't need to add any other testimony you don't need to be linked to uh, the king's son's death in any way and then Himas says whatever happened be, be what may just, just let me go so he said to him run then Himas ran by way of the plane and outran the Cushite see that uh, Peter or sorry John outrunning Peter right to the tomb of christ now david was sitting between the two gates so in this city you're going to have an inner wall and an outer wall so there's an inner gate and an outer gate and how the city is structured david is sitting as king he's in that position of authority and that position of power as there are watchmen waiting for news in regards to what has gone on this day on the battlefield. So David is sitting between the two gates. And the watchman went up on the roof of the gate to wait, uh, to the wall, sorry, lifted his eyes and looked. And there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimez, the son of Zadok. Do you have a specific way you run? Can you tell how other people run? I know. Some people run really goofy. Some people are really speedy. Ahimaz, I think he's a good runner. There's a guy that's booking it, is what he's saying. I think it's himaz. So the king said, he's a good man, so therefore he's coming with good news. So Ahimaz called out and said to the king, all is well, literally, shalom, peace. Then he bowed down his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered, who has shut up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. What does David want to know? The king says, is the young man Absalom safe? Is the young man Absalom shalom? Him has answered, when Joab sent the king's servants... And me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. For whatever reason, Ahimaz wants to be there. He knows that Absalom's dead, but he's going to let the Cushite deliver that information rather than himself. Again, because of all the cultural implications here. Verse 30, the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king. For the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do harm, to do evil, be like that young man. says then the king was deeply moved he is trembling the word is that he is quaking with fear this has been his concern for an extended period of time in regards to his son and his son's character and his son's behavior his fears have just become his reality His desire is that Absalom's rebellion would lead to a reconciliation. He wanted his son to be dealt softly with. And here, as a dad, he is hearing that his son has been killed. And in that emotion, and in that moment, David is quaking and trembling in all the mourning that's going on he gets himself out of the public eye he went went up to the chamber over the gate and wept you can imagine people hearing and as he went he said thus oh my son absalom my son my son absalom If only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. Grieving as a father, right? True words in his own perspective that, you know, it's it's never right to see a parent outlive a child. A child should always outlive a parent. But here you have David as a father grieving. But David can't, be just a dad in this moment David has a calling David has an anointing David as David is seated at the gate as king and as king he has a responsibility to the people so this is this is this uh, area of, of topic in regards to serving the Lord The Lord is always to be our primary focus and how we process through life's moment. Even when you want to emotionally engage in a circumstance in this way, in the position and uh, whatever it may be that God has you in that moment, he is directing you that you need to emotionally engage the circumstance in another way. That is the dilemma that David is sitting in in this moment. And Joab recognizes it. Chapter 19 says, Joab was told, Behold, the king's weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory, that the salvation of the day, was turned into a mourning for all of the people. The people went out to war to protect the valuable life of their king. They hit the target that they needed to hit. It is a day of victory. It is a day of deliverance. It is a day of salvation. They protected their king as they were supposed to. And now as they're witnessing their king, their king is in mourning because of the victory, because it's the death of his son. So the people are now... They're confused, and it's never good for the people that you are leading to be in confusion. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved uh, for his son, and the people stole back. Literally, they're sneaking in by stealth. David's in the gate. He's in a chamber of the gate. They can hear him weeping and mourning, and rather than coming in as a victorious army, they're sneaking into the gate quietly. There's no victory. There's no celebration for salvation. It's it's sneaking in, feeling guilty for having a day of victory, is all the emotion. So they're sneaking back in that day, as people who are ashamed, who are hurt, who steal away when they flee in the battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced, you have shamed all of your servants who today have saved your life. The lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared, you have proclaimed today that you regard neither princes nor servants, that you have no respect for your leaders nor for your servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us died today, then it would have pleased you well. How's that for a rebuke? It's a bad day for David. Now therefore, get up, go out, And speak to the heart. Speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. And that's quite a bit. Then the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying... There is the king sitting in the gate. So, all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. So, in this scene, again, it's a rough day for David, right? And this image of where we're following David, where he's sitting in this position as king, he's sitting in a position of authority, he has sent out his soldiers, he has mixed goals for the day, and in that mixture of goals as king, as a leader, that is never what, that's not the position that you want to be in. When you sit in the gate, when you sit in Jesus Christ, we can't serve two masters, and this is what we find David doing, as he's trying to serve himself and his son and the emotions that are associated with that, and he's trying to be the appointed king that God has called him to be in the day. And he's living out this day and this life experience in that mixture in serving two masters. And as he is doing so, it's causing confusion in his people when they have victory and they did what was necessary for the day, not pressing into the violence of it because David doesn't know the violence of it in this moment. But when the people come back, they're coming back in confusion because the king sent him out for victory. They came back with victory, but David is acting like the day has been lost. And Joab just sticks it right to David's heart in the moment. And, da- and Joab is able to give David the clarity that he needs in the moment. And again, we need that voice. We need that voice from the Holy Spirit to give us clarity when we're, when we're waffling between the two masters that are trying to rule over our hearts in the moment. But in this, the exhortation is is we're sitting in the gate of Jesus Christ. We're sitting in his authority. At the very end of this, we have David sitting in that and all of his regalia as, as king. He's seated in the seat of authority, in the seat of the king, in the seat at the gate. And he's presenting that image, speaking to the hearts of the people that what you did today, it was right. It's what you were commanded to do. And he's speaking to their hearts. He's encouraging them, even though that they had to do something really difficult in the moment. But as we're sitting in David's heart, in the man David, not just the image of the Messiah that he's to portray to us, as we sit with the man, we're sitting with the man in his relationship with God in an extremely difficult day. In David's day, could he have just crumpled in his mourning and in his grief? Hey, David, David is totally justified just to, I'm done. I don't want this position. I didn't ask for this. This is way too difficult. He's sitting in the in the emotion that the events that have happened on this day are the result of his own behavior. So he's sitting in guilt in that moment. And David, again, he images for us a man who is looking towards the heart of God. He's, look, he's a man who is in the midst of extreme guilt, extreme confusion, extreme shame, extreme mourning, extreme remorse. He's sitting in all of these emotions in that moment on that day. And what does he choose to do? He chooses to get up, wash his face, calm his heart, and sit in the seat at the gate that the Lord has directed him to sit in. Was that a difficult day for David? To me, to me that, that expresses faith. I, I can hear the words of Jesus to David in that moment. David, great is your faith. Your faith has made you well. Your faith is giving you comfort. Your faith is giving you strength in the moment. Your faith as you want to mourn. Your faith is giving you the ability and the strength to give comfort and speak to the heart of people who have just saved your life. David has to publicly put on a face that cannot be on on the outside if it's not a real thing that's going on on the inside. He's sitting in all the emotions of the moment and he's willing to say, God, I trust you and I'm going to continue to sit in you and look to you and love you and do what you tell me to do even on a day It's a miserable day, and it's really hard to do, but is the Lord worth it? And that gets back to that other statement. How valuable, not how valuable are you, and not how valuable is the person sitting next to you. How valuable is your creator to you? Worship team, come on up. I will confess to you, when I hold my God my Savior, His Holy Spirit, His Word, in light esteem, that's when I start serving the Master Blake. That's when I start serving my will, my wants, my comforts. I'll choose the easy thing and the lazy thing rather than the will of God. When I hold our God, my God, my Savior, His Holy Spirit, His word in high esteem. When I am attending to him, the difficult thing, it's not difficult. and it's not difficult because he gives me shalom, He gives me peace. He gives me the power to do what I need to do in the moment, that as I'm walking out those hard experiences, those hard circumstances of life, it's not that it's easy but it is right, and there is shalom. There is peace in that moment when I recognize his worth and live out that in service, in action.